Heavenly Father, by your grace, you have given us testimony over testimony of faithful saints throughout the centuries. Individual men and women, sinners saved by grace, just like us, who by faith not only did great things in your name that you might be glorified, but also in faith suffered many tragedies, even being martyred for your name's sake. You give us this teaching here at the end of Hebrews 11 that we might be rightly encouraged in the midst of our own struggles. That we would find by faith, Father, whether life is good or difficult, you might be glorified in our persistence in Christ. We praise you, Lord, that you sent a Savior that would suffer on our behalf so that these light and momentary afflictions truly might be for your glory and the blessing of your saints. I ask, Lord, in the midst of these very strange and difficult times that you would grant great faith to your church. I ask, Lord, that you would bless Cambrian Park Baptist Church and every true church here in the South Bay that we would be a brilliant light and that sanctifying salt to a culture that so needs to be delivered from sin and death. I ask, Lord, that you would deliver us this morning that we might share the gospel and see others delivered as well. In Christ's holy name I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm thankful you're here today by God's grace, to worship the living God. What an incredible blessing that the children of Yahweh can gather and sing and pray and proclaim the gospel and be rightly encouraged, especially in a time like this. If you do not have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 11, please do so. We are going to close out the heroes of the faith, the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. I pray you have been richly edified thus far Go back, reread it. We'll close it out today as we come into the culmination of the teaching in Hebrews chapter 12 and Christ on the cross. But before we do that, we need to address several other people that the author wants to draw our attention to. Most of us, I would argue, over the past six months have grappled with things that we've not been used to. COVID-19, shelter-in-place regulations, for some of us, unemployment Obviously, civil unrest. One of the common sentiments that I've heard is that I just want it to be over. I wish things could get back to normal. And that's the right response because human beings were created in the image of God in the beginning not to suffer. We weren't made to go through this type of suffering. And so saved and unsaved alike will always cry for relief and deliverance in the midst of pain and suffering. It's not just something that Christians long for. Our culture has sought deliverance from doctors and politicians, from the courts, and many have taken to the streets to try to find some relief from the tension that we see. Others have sought deliverance from entertainment, drugs, alcohol, sex. 
but even the casual observer, someone will be able to stop and say, those deliverers have not worked. We're no better off now than we were six months ago before many of these crises took over. These deliverers have not worked and cannot work because there's only one deliverer and that is God. And he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Christian knows that only God can deliver by faith. This morning, I want to look at three characteristics of how God delivers his people. Seemingly, at times, they seem to be in juxtaposition to one another, but they are not. And as you see these examples lifted up here, my hope and my prayer is that you will be encouraged to stay the course of faith in Christ, no matter how difficult your life gets. You'll stay the course until the end by his strength and his power. I want to do that by looking at three things. One, God's deliverance now. How God actually does deliver his people now. Number two, God's deliverance later. Sometimes we have to wait. And lastly, God's deliverance perfected. That end of the story that is promised for all who repent and believe. So first, God's deliverance now. After talking in some detail of the previous cast of characters, starting with Abel, and then as we ended last week with Rahab, the author is looking at his parchment and he's realizing he's running out of room. This is a letter sent to a church. And so he has much more to say. And so for brevity's sake, look at verse 32. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. He said, I, I cannot give you a survey of the entire Old Testament and those men and women who remain faithful to God in this letter. And so he summarizes for us in fantastic fashion to increase the faith of his audience and to increase our faith People they knew well. Now this is, this is a little bit hard to preach because the original audience knew all these characters well. They knew their stories. They knew how God worked in their lives. We don't know our Old Testament that well, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna work through it quickly. But I wanna encourage you, any name that stands out and say, hey, I wanna know more about Samson. I wanna know about more about Barak. Go and read it because it's in the Bible and you can do so. Amen? Amen. All right. Through Gideon's faith, we saw God bring victory to Israel over the Midianites with 300 men. You, re you remember how he whittled down the forces from 35,000 down to 300, and they won victory in Judges chapter 7 with torches and trumpets by God's grace. By faith, Barak brought Israel victory over Sisera, the commander of the Confederate Canaanites, who had over 900 chariots, God was faithful and delivered Israel because of the faith of Barak. By faith, Samson, even with all of his faults, he championed Israel's cause against the Philistines for four chapters, Judges 13 through 16. Jephthah, the Gileadite, is recognized for leading God's people victoriously against the Ammonites in Judges chapter 10. David, now most of us know David, his accolades are legendary. And the author references him here because we know David to be what? A man after God's own heart. We know David to be a man of great faith. 
And of course, Samuel, the last of the judges and the first in the prophetic line of God, a man of such great integrity and uncompromised faithfulness, to say the name Samuel, they would hear that and say, that was a man of faith. That man walked the walk. And then he ends this brief list with the prophets in general. And so they would call to mind Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the minor prophets would flood into their minds. All men whose lives of faith proclaimed the gospel, whose lives actually were displayed in their radical obedience to the living God, even to the point of being martyred. So the author wants his audience to see that God, listen, through faith, people of great faith did great things. And this was not an anomaly. God wants us to see here that it's fundamental to the redemptive story that we expect God through his people in faith to do great things in our lives too. That we as a church should expect God, if we are faithful to God, to do things that are unexpected. Do things that we would say are indeed supernatural. Look at verse 33. Referencing back to this brief list of men. Men who, verse 33, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. My goodness, if that were a movie. I mean, think about the blockbuster nature of that movie coming out. Multiple movies. And yet, all true occurrences, historically real, according to God's strength in his people. Now, most of these victories could be ascribed to many Old Testament characters. But as you read through this, you probably heard it. You probably thought, oh, some people are coming to mind. And it certainly would have for that first century Jewish Christian audience. Those who conquered many kingdoms, the judges conquered many kingdoms. We see that throughout the book. David, of course, expanded the kingdom all the way from the Egyptian border to the Euphrates River in 1 Kings 4. The phrase enforced justice, that was to establish just governments. We know that Samuel did that. We know that David did that. In fact, in 2 Samuel 8.15, this is what was said of David. He administered judgment and justice for all people. And then we're told some of these men stopped the mouths of lions. And you immediately have to think who? You got to think Daniel. The author intends us to think Daniel. You remember that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he committed the awful sin of praying to God. And yet his life was preserved because he exercised faith in that God. Daniel 6.22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before the Lord. Quench the power of fire and you think of the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, do you not? And that immediately comes to mind and how by faith Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when threatened with the fiery furnace for not bowing down to an idol They said this to Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden calf that you have set up. And then only a few verses later, in Daniel 3.26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and everyone saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Fantastic. You say, well, how is that possible? God's intervention by grace through faith. Some escaped the edge of the sword, certainly David escaping Saul, Elijah escaping Jezebel, Jeremiah escaping Jehoiakim. By faith, many were made strong out of weakness. And of course, Samson should come to mind. We know how his life ended, although tragic. We know to the very end, he prayed that God would give him his strength back. And in that single act, he killed more Philistines, the enemies of God's people, than in all his previous battles. We're told in verse 34 that many became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight, a testimony of God's faithfulness throughout the history of Israel. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And of course, you must think of the widow at Zarephath, how she, because of the faith of Elijah, received her son back in bodily form. He was dead, and through prayer, Elijah, he came alive. You also would think of Elisha and the Shumanite woman's son whose body lay there dead and through the faith of the prophet, his life was returned. Each example, my beloved, and there are so many more, and he makes it brief because he realizes it's an overwhelming testimony to God's desire to bless his people through faith. That this is God's desire. This is part of the redemptive story. This should be part of how you think as a Christian. That in your faith, God will do great things in your life. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount made this kingdom principle clear. Listen, this is from Matthew chapter 7. If you said, oh, that was all the Old Testament, that doesn't happen today. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. And then he said this, listen, for everyone, everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to who? To those who ask in faith. My beloved, we don't ask. We don't ask because we don't believe. We think, I'll ask, but he's not going to answer. Or I'll ask, but he won't answer for a long time. That's not what Christ says here. These are not vain promises. They're not intended to ease your conscience or your intellectual suffering when you're going through a difficult time. They are real promises made by the real God who is powerful, who is gracious, who is your Father, and who wants to bless you through faith. Now I know that the the prosperity gospel has taken this passage and others like it and they've perverted it to portray God as some type of genie in the sky that we ask And we receive no matter what we ask. Instead of the good and gracious father that he is. Who gives perfectly to his children. He knows when to say yes and he knows when to say no. Because he loves you. He gives perfectly to his children. Not only for your well-being but mostly for his glory. 
We must see that faith, listen, real faith in the life of someone saved by grace brings about supernatural results. Real faith brings about supernatural results. In other words, our faith is not simply a future hope of when I get there then mindset. This abbreviated list of men and women who for centuries displayed the victories of God in their lives through faith testifies to the real power and the real hope that you can have, individuals and collectively as a church, that we can have of God delivering us right now, this morning. Whatever your trial, whatever your temptation, whatever your struggle might be, God wants to deliver you from that through faith. The same vehicle that delivered David from the hand of Goliath. The same vehicle that delivered the Daniel, I'm sorry, David from Goliath and Daniel from the lion's jaws and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. That same vehicle to deliver you by faith. That means that if you are in Christ at this very moment, you have the power by the grace of God through faith to overcome every single sin that you think invincible. There is no invincible sin for the believer in Christ. That anxiety you think will never go away. You say, my mind is so infected with worry and anxiety, I will never overcome it. That is a lie. God can put your anxiety away by faith. That bitter root that produces anger and frustrations and fits of rage in your life can be overcome by God through faith. Your marriage that seems hopeless. He said, I'll never get to that place that God is pleased with. Again, a lie. God desires a glorious, vibrant Ephesians 5 marriage, and that can take place by faith. Your ministry, your ministry. For many of you, the gifts and talents given to you to build up the church, your ministry that is non-existent right now is desired by God to be exercised to great effect by faith. Your rebellious children who are not walking with the Lord like the son of the widow at Zarephath can be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life by grace through faith. Our church, fighting to stay active and healthy in the midst of a hostile climate and a hostile state, can in fact thrive by grace through faith. In other words, my beloved, as children of the living God, there is nothing, no thing, not one thing that God cannot do through his people by faith. Nothing. Nothing. So whatever you've settled in your mind, that I cannot overcome that, I cannot be blessed in that way, this church cannot succeed in that way, that is a lie. God says, not true. By faith, great things happen. No blessing, no sin that needs to be mortified, no kingdom work that needs to be done, no broken relationship that needs to be mended is something that God cannot do by his power through faith. So first, I pray we see that it is part of God's redemptive plan. It is normal for God's people to expect God to do great things in our lives through faith. 
We don't have this list. I don't want you to take this list, these heroes of the faith or the hall of faith. You say, those were people unlike us. They were sinners, saved by grace, just like us. Weak and sinful, but strengthened by God's decree. Strengthened by faith. So the question becomes, I think, for many of us, if you were listening to this passage being read, is why does God do great things with some who are faithful and we see such great suffering and what we would consider a lack of deliverance now for others who are equally faithful? What does it mean if God does not deliver you when you pray to him fervently? What if that struggle continues until the day you die? What does that mean? Does that mean that you lack faith? Does that mean that you're not saved? What if you battle and battle and battle and then you enter the grave? Does that bring your salvation into question? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Sometimes deliverance comes later. The author does not want to portray a false prosperity gospel. He wants to portray a true living God and a true living church in the midst of a broken world. And so right in the middle of verse 35, we have this massive shift. All these Old Testament figures and the great things that God did through them. And suddenly in the middle of verse 35, we pick up the theme of suffering. And it carries us all the way to the end of the chapter. In other words, he ends the list of faithful saints. Those who did not receive the blessing, the deliverance from the adversary now. But in fact, many were tortured and suffered a martyr's death without ever seeing or experiencing the temporal movement of the living God. Look at the middle of verse 35 with me again. Notice the shift in this list. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So as with the previous list, this describes many of the saints in the Old Testament. Some we know, some we don't know. But it also should highlight a few as you were hearing it read the first time and then read again. In verse 35, when it says, those who were tortured, refusing release so they might rise again to a better life, most commentators believe this comes from 2 Maccabees and that story I read to you a couple weeks ago with the, the mother and her seven children who refused to submit to Antiochus IV during the Maccabean revolt and suffered horrible torture and death. In Jeremiah 19.15, Jeremiah prophesied this. He said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they are stiff-necked, refusing to hear my word. Jeremiah, like the prophet, speaking the truth of God to a people that did not want to hear it. The result for Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 20, he was beaten and chained and put in stocks near the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord so everybody passing by could mock him. For what? For speaking God's word. On another occasion, Jeremiah had been beaten and imprisoned and thrown in a dungeon for, a, for being falsely accused of deserting 
in Jeremiah 37 to the Chaldeans. It's recorded in the Old Testament that the prophet Micaiah, not Micah, Micaiah, was in prison in 1 Kings 22. Hanani, 2 Chronicles 16, both of them for rebuking their kings because God had given them a word to do so. In fact, so bad had it become for the prophets that the city of Jerusalem, Zion, God's city, had become, had earned a reputation for a place where the prophets were killed. They were stoned to death for bringing God's word to the people. Even Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to our Lord. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that what? That kills the prophets and stones stones those who are sent to it. We know that Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah, the priest, was stoned to death by the order of King Joash when he prophesied this to the people in 2 Chronicles 24. Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. So by the command of the king, they what? They stoned Zechariah with stones in the court of the house of God. The prophet comes to Jerusalem. He proclaims the gospel message in the temple. And what do they do? They stone him. They kill him. Jewish legends arose surrounding Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah was believed to have been sawed in two. That's not in the Bible, by the way, by King Manasseh, but that's certainly what the author is referring to here. And Jeremiah was thought to be stoned to death by Egyptian Jews who were upset that he was condemning their idolatry. The prophet Uriah, a contemporary of Jeremiah, he was brought before Jehoiakim, and he was struck down with the sword, and his body was cast into the commoner's grave. We're told this in Jeremiah 26. So we see that many of the prophets and many of God's people suffered horrific deaths as a result of their faithfulness to the living God. But in addition to their suffering violent deaths, many experienced extreme persecution and hardship in life. Look at the latter part of verse 37. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, when you hear sheep and goat skins, you must think of Elijah. He was the trendsetter back then. In fact, he was known as the prophet who wore the hairy coat. So, in fact, he passed the coat down to Elisha. And we know that that was a trend because in Zechariah 13, 4, it talks about the prophets no longer wearing that coat that distinguished their office. It was the uniform of the prophet to have that sheep skin or that goat skin, which was a symbol of their separation from the world being sent by God and their impoverished condition. Many Old Testament saints found themselves wandering about in the deserts, as it says, in the mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Certainly John the Baptist must come to mind, the last Old Testament prophet. We know that he was a hairy coat wearer, and we know that his pulpit was in the wilderness. But it wasn't just the prophets. Many of God's faithful believers took to the deserts and the mountains and the caves to remain faithful to God when their kings or foreign enemies required them to bow down to idols. And then the author sums up these faithful saints with this glorious affirmation. Look at verse 38. Those 
whom the world was not worthy. Glorious, faithful servants of God, sent by God to bring a word to sinful man, a word of repentance, a word of faith, a word of reconciliation between God and man. And how were they treated? They were tortured, they were imprisoned, they were excommunicated, and many of them were martyred. So again, the struggle for us when we hear this is we say, why the two groups? When I read this passage, I see those who are faithful to God, and in their faithfulness, they experience great temporal blessings. They receive promises now. And then you keep reading on that list, Pastor, and we get down to the bottom of it, and people who were equally faithful, who lived lives that were defined primarily by suffering, torture, and many horrific, unimaginable deaths. So how can God, on the one hand, bless His faithful children with blessings now, and on the other hand, withhold those blessings until later? If you're like me, working through this this week, my thought was, my flesh said, that's not fair. That's not fair, God. Certainly those who were cast out and excommunicated and suffered the martyrs, certainly they were men and women of great faith too. And that, that's true. They were. So how do we get around this? Well, fundamentally, we must remember that we are creatures and that God is the creator. We are creatures and God is the creator. You're not just a creature, you're a creature made in his image. And your primary purpose for living at this very moment, when you were born until the day you die, is to bring him honor and glory. That's why we're here. It's not so that we live prosperous lives, so that we suffer. It's so that we honor God in all that we do. And therefore, first and foremost, and this might be hard if you're suffering right now, if you're not suffering and things are good, you say, oh, of course, for the glory of God. It's easy to say that when life is good. But if you're suffering, it might be hard when you hear someone say that it is right and good for God to decide how his children's life will proceed. It's his decision according to his will. In other words, our lives, according to God, are lived out in a way that brings him the most glory whether it be temporal blessings or suffering and hardship. In the Gospel of John, right before Christ had already been risen from the dead and right before he ascends into heaven, he has this incredible dialogue with Peter that reveals the simplicity of this truth. He says to Peter, this is from John 21, he says to Peter how he's going to die a martyr's death. It's not a good word for Peter. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, listen, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. You're going to suffer a martyr's death. Upon hearing this, Peter doesn't say, praise God. He doesn't say, thank you, Jesus, for telling me this that I might know when it comes. Peter turns and he looks at John and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about that man? What's going to happen to him? Wrong question. Jesus said, if it is, listen, if it is my will that he, John, remains until I come, 
What is that to you, Peter? You what? You follow me. Your life will be different than John's. You have a single job in the gospel of grace that is out of your love for my Father. Christ said, you follow me. Wherever I may lead. Hard words. Peter was not less faithful than John. It wasn't because Peter lacked faith that he suffered a martyr's death and John got to spend the rest of his days as an exile on the island of Patmos. The decision was God's according to God's will that brought him the most glory. It should be an amen. I mean, if you, if you have a right understanding of God's sovereignty over your life, and you understand that you are a sinner saved by grace, then you, like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, will say, send me, Lord, whatever you want to bring, whatever job, whatever hardship, whatever glory, whatever blessing, I want to follow you. That's the right response. So when we think that's not fair, you must remember, God is God. God is God. But the New Testament also, because God wants us to understand why hardship and suffering comes, the New Testament offers us several reasons, real good reasons, for when you, in your faith, suffer. Romans chapter 8, James chapter 1 tells us that one of the reasons that Christians suffer is to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we might be made more like our Savior. Listen to this from James 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of you is that your life verse? Count it all joy, joy, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may, what, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we know this, my beloved, when you're suffering, in Christ, don't you draw closer to the Lord? I mean, isn't that the response? Is to press into the word and into prayer and to the cross? The Apostle Paul also tells us that one of the reasons we suffer is that we might know Christ more fully. To be conformed to his image and to know him better. In fact, Paul said in Philippians 3.10, he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we also suffer to prepare us for heaven. Preparation for perfection. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light and momentary affliction is what? Preparing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So suffering for the believer is to be accepted. Walking in faith in Christ is coupled with suffering so that you might become as Christ is, so that you might know Christ more intimately and to prepare you right now for an eternity of perfection in the Lord. None of those reasons are, the, are why I believe they're here in Hebrews 11. That was just good food for you to enjoy. I think that Hebrews 11, the primary reason that the author spent an entire chapter developing this list of faithful men and women who suffered extreme hardship was to testify to us to stay the course in Christ. He tells us of these men and women of faith who suffered 
and yet they stayed the course so that we can hear the testimony and stay the course too, that we won't fall away. His audience, we know from Hebrews chapter 10, they've already experienced adversity, humiliation, loss of property, imprisonment. So they knew suffering well. And so he reminds them, he says, remember, part of this faith is suffering. But it's not for naught. Look at all the people in the Old Testament. Look at what their their faith brought to them in the midst of their suffering. Unlike Job's friends, whose understanding of faith was perverted. And they believed that if you experienced temporal blessings, that you were being faithful and God was pleased with you. They believed that if you suffered for the sake of righteousness, that it was an indication of faithlessness or that God was not pleased with you. The author here in Hebrews blows that horrible theology away and he lists These forefathers, faithful men and women who had what? Been approved by God already. Verse 2. And yet they suffered. They had already been commended by God and yet they suffered. Go back up to verse 1. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. In other words, through faith regardless of how their lives played out, regardless of how God delivered them or did not deliver them, the suffering of the trials, the impending death, faith is what sustained them. Peter or John, already commended by God, different lives, different endings, and yet through faith and remaining faithful, that commendation stayed. What pleases God and what makes a Christian, and marks a Christian's life is faith in God. What pleases the Lord most is your faith in Him. What marks you out from the world is your faith in Him when things are good and when things are not so good. If your life is blessed right now, and I, I think most of our lives are given where we live. Most of the problems that we deal with are third, our first world issues, right? If you find yourself blessed right now, not much suffering in your life, praise God for it. But ask yourself, is your faith growing in the midst of the prosperity? Are you being drawn to Christ, drawn to the Word? Is your faith growing even though God is blessing you? If you you find yourself suffering right now, maybe to the likes of which you never have before. Same question. Is your faith growing? Are you still persevering and pressing into Christ and exercising the means of grace for His glory even though things are really hard? The true believer stays and grows in faith regardless of the season. The true believer says, I I have staked my faith and my hope and my life on Christ regardless of what happens. The true believer, like the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, becomes a testimony to everyone around. A testimony in the midst of prosperity that you still have placed your faith in God and you haven't wandered off because now you're self-sufficient. A testimony to all around that you've kept your faith in God even though very difficult trials and hardship have come upon you. A testimony 
is what we are to be to our families, our friends, our co-workers, and certainly to Cambrian Park. So the last question I want to ask is, what is it about this faith that enables someone to be tortured or put to death for God's sake? I mean, how, how, how did these men and women in Hebrews 11, how are they sustained in circumstances I dare say we cannot begin to imagine? We might have dreams like that. We haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it. Not here. Most of us anyway. Two things sustain them. One, the promise. And number two, that he waited. The promise and that he waited. So we've seen how sometimes God delivers people now from their struggles. Sometimes he waits and delivers them later after they die. But I want you to notice, God always delivers his people to perfection. He always brings us to that end of the story for those who remain faithful. Last point, are you still with me? Give me a louder yes than that. Thank you very much. Deliverance perfected. Look at verse 39. This is the best part of the sermon. I'm not kidding. This, This should level you. It leveled me this week. Verse 39. And all these, he's talking about all the people that were listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. All these men, all these women, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So before the author radically redirects their focus directly upon Christ and the cross, which he will do in chapter 12, he wants to reveal to them an unbelievable fact and a most encouraging truth. In verse 39, it should draw us back to Verse 2, in verse 2 we're said, by faith the people of old received their commendation, their approval from God. And then here in verse 39, it's a bookend. He said, all these, those who were discussed, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All of these faithful saints, commended by God, honored by God, approved by God, said, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, and yet we're told here they did not receive what was promised. Blessings beyond measure to the nation of Israel. So many blessings over the centuries. I mean, beginning with the hope of salvation that came through the seed of Abraham, that being Christ himself. They were made into a mighty nation. They were delivered out of Egypt and into the promised land. They achieved, by God's grace through faith, great works over their enemies. They received the law. They received the prophets. They had God's presence in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And they witnessed miracle upon miracle. Incredible blessings. We can say the same, my beloved, if we are in Christ. Blessings right now that you have if you have placed your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. If you know Christ, then right now you've been set free from the power of sin. That's one of the glorious pieces of the gospel, that sin no longer binds you. You have been completely forgiven for every sin, past, present, and future. You have, been, you have received by God's grace through faith the imputed righteousness of Jesus. You are holy as he is holy at this very moment. 
You are a temple now of the living God. The Holy Spirit has been given to you and the Spirit now dwells in you if you are in Christ. You have the communion by God's grace of the saints. You have answered prayer, God's comfort, God's help, God's support in a very present time of need right now. But not one of you have received the promise yet. Not one of us. From Abel, we started in Abel, Genesis chapter 4, to this very present hour, not one of God's children has received the promise. Promised here, it's singular. It's not promises. God makes lots of promises to his children. It's a single promise. It is the supreme fulfillment of the redemptive story. It is the end of the story. When your faith is consummated, when your flesh receives what? The things hoped for. No longer faith. When you are able to see with your own eyes, your own eyes in your new glorified body, you're able to see the things not yet seen you will see. In other words, this promise, this singular promise, is the final commendation of sinful man saved by grace before a holy God. When Jesus, our high priest, will bring you before the living God and he will commend you before the Father. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Christ will bring you before the Father and say, This is your son. This is your daughter. Why? Because they have placed their faith in me. Jesus will, as our eternal king, for all the faithful saints, Matthew 25, 34, he said, come to you, listen, you who are blessed by my father, do what? Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world is yours. That's the final promise. It's when we will enjoy, as we looked at in verse 35, the better resurrection the better resurrection, the consummation of the resurrection, new glorified body to live in the presence of God here on earth in his kingdom forever and ever, worshiping him in perfect spirit and truth because sin will no longer be a barrier. In this consummated state, the city with the eternal foundations, Revelation 21, what? It'll come down to earth and this will be God's dwelling place. The entire earth and you will reign with Christ upon his throne, the church. It will be when Jesus, in Revelation 21, says to his faithful saints who have suffered, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It is a time when there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the older things will have passed away and the new has in fact come. That is the promise. It is a time when every faithful saint, everyone will be free from any suffering of any kind. This promise, when Christ comes again in all the glory of the Father and he brings this eschatological glory to earth, has not been experienced by anyone. Not yet anyway. But it is this hope 
in the promise, this promise, this fantastic end to God's redemptive story, it's this hope that was sufficient to fuel our forefathers' faith for centuries. It's what enabled them to suffer a martyr's death. It's what equipped them to stay the course when things were really, really hard. And yet still they did not receive it. And what this passage tells us as to why, I truly believe will enable you to stay the course. Look at verse 39 again. All these great men and women, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, that promise of the glory of God in Christ and his kingdom coming. Why? Verse 40. Since God had provided something better for who? For us. You say, well, he's talking to the Jewish Christian church. Of course, of course, and us provided something better for us that apart from us, they, the saints of old, they should not be made perfect, not yet. If the magnitude of the promise that God has made to you as a believer in Christ is not sufficient to enable you to press on toward the goal, to win the prize, to stay the course in faith, if that's not sufficient, this is, this is, This specific, eternal love that God has revealed for you, saint. For you. Every faithful saint of old, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samuel, David, Elijah, you put the name in, every single one has had to wait the consummation of the kingdom of God, the coming of Jesus Christ, and the promise fulfilled because God provided something better for us. Because God had planned before you were ever born. In fact, the Bible says before anything ever was, he planned for you to participate in it. For you. Did you hear that, saints? The saints of old right now, they have to wait because more are still coming in. They have to wait at this very moment for Christ to come and establish his kingdom because the promise of faith is not complete until all those who have been ordained by God to be saved are in, including you. In Revelation chapter 6, The Apostle John says, I saw, he has this vision, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been born. And so he's talking about many of the saints that we had just discussed. They cried out with a loud voice, listen, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until Christ comes? They want to know? Why are you waiting? This is the Lord's response. Each was given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Why? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Same word. Until you can be made complete in Christ. They are not experiencing perfection. The consummation of their faith, not yet, because we have not experienced it yet. And they won't until we do. Verse 40 again. Apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That word perfect is the end, the teleos, the completion of our faith in Christ, in Christ. 
The story could have been different, you know. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom could have come immediately. And all these faithful saints throughout the centuries could have received the promise that God had given. Had that taken place, there'd have been no New Testament era, no New Testament church, no Cambrian Park Baptist Church. The author was speaking to his community and said, God has waited so that you could be included. Stay the course. The Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, God has waited so you could be included. Stay the course. Stay the course of faith. God is waiting because he loves you. God is waiting because he desires for you, a sinner saved by grace, to be in his presence now and for eternity. God is waiting so that we can participate together in the communion of the saints, worshiping God forever and ever. It makes sense, right? We, we wait for people we love, don't we? We want them to be with us. We want, them, we want to enjoy their time together. Three years ago at Kirk and Sarah's wedding in Felton, some of you were there, we had record-setting temperatures and record-setting traffic on Highway 17. It was some day. We were supposed to start the wedding at 4 o'clock sharp. The wedding planner insisted that we start no later than 4.15. She had a job to do, right? I mean, she needed that wedding to move on so they could get to the appetizers, to get to the dinner, to get to the cutting of the cake and the first dance and all the great things that happened at a wedding. By 4.15, half of the guests were not there. It was an empty house. Many family members who had flown in from out of town. At 4.30, the wedding planner came and she insisted to me that we have to start with or without those who were there. And so I, dripping in sweat patiently, explained to her that it was more important to Kirk and Sarah that everyone be present than the cutting of the cake, the speeches, or the first dance. It was more important that the people they loved participate And so, we waited. We waited. My beloved, this passage is revealing the same thing on an eternal scale. That God the Father wants you to be part of the wedding feast of the Son. And therefore, He will not begin. He will not begin the festivities until you're in. All the way in. What grace from God to you. What love expressed by God to you. That He would wait God would wait for the consummation of human history for you. That God would wait to destroy all evil, to end all rebellion against his son. He he is waiting right now for the complete and total exaltation of Jesus Christ, where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He's waiting for you. For all who repent, who turn from their sins, and put their faith in Christ, he's waiting that we might share in it. This extreme love, I believe, is more than sufficient to motivate you individually and us as a church to stay the course of faith. More than sufficient. If those promises are not so tantalizing to you that you say that can keep me on the course as it did our forefathers, certainly this must. 
That God's love for you is so extreme and so radical and so eternal that he's actually waiting the consummation of Jesus Christ coming to establish his kingdom until you get in. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I pray it motivates you right now. Whether life is good or bad, easy or difficult, to stay the course. God is waiting for you. I pray that it motivates you to share this incredible news of the gospel of Christ with the lost. The prophet Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's still near. The door of salvation is still open. God is still waiting because that promise is going to others. So that faith, which continues to spread around the world, will save many through grace. Many are still coming from the four corners to sit at the table of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What a glorious message to remind yourself of daily and to tell others about too. Jesus Christ, in his high priestly work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven has granted us access to God right now and guarantees our presence forever and ever for those who keep the faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if not for your patience, if not for your waiting, none of us would be in this room right now. Many of us would not have been born. But by your grace and mercy, you want that kingdom to be filled with every soul you ordained to be saved before the foundations of the world. And you will not send Christ to do the mighty work of reconciliation, of judgment, until every soul you ordained to be saved is in fact saved. Father, how, how motivating this should be for us. Not only the incredible promises that you have given us, the promise that we will be able to be in the presence of Christ and reign with Christ and worship Christ forever, but that you have, out of your love for us, waited that we can participate in it. We're thankful, Father, that you have waited. We ask, Lord, that you would cultivate in our hearts a deep desire to share this gospel truth with others, that we might tell others that they too can come into your kingdom. They need not remain enemies, that through Jesus Christ, through the blood of the cross, they too can repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ and be brought all the way in too. I ask, Lord, that you would make us vocal make us bold and courageous to bring this gospel truth to a world that so needs to be delivered. This day, in Christ's name, amen.